You are listening to the Mary Jane Society podcast, where you will meet entrepreneurs, cultivators, scientists, doctors, and inventors in the cannabis industry. I'm your host, Pam Schmiel, marketer and publicist in the cannabis industry. Today we meet Colin Decker. He was born and raised in upstate New York and has been growing cannabis since he was about 13 when his mother gifted him with a tin of seeds she got from a friend in Amsterdam. Colin went from legacy to legal and launched his pre-roll brand, Seven Seas. He's determined to be a dominant brand in the New York market and is innovating with a triple-infused pre-roll called the Tsunami. Colin is also giving back to the community with a nonprofit he started that will eventually help to subsidize cannabis farmers in need of funding. And his packaging is made of recycled plastic retrieved from the ocean. Let's hear how Colin's carving a path in New York's cannabis industry. you know, senior brand and, um, I'm based in New York city. Um, and, uh, yeah, I, I'm, I'm so excited that, uh, I have a chance to talk to you and, and, and meet you. Um, so I guess, you know, I, I would love to first hear about your background, uh, in the legacy market. Uh, if you could just give uh, us a, yeah, a little background. Yeah. Um, Let's see. At this point in my life, I'm what you consider to be a career cultivator of the cannabis plant. Um, I started at 13 years old. My mom and dad left me with the gift and the ability to discover on my own um, what I could do with the cannabis plant. My mom gifted me a shaving tin of seeds that someone smuggled over from Amsterdam for her. Um, and she said, here you go, give these a try and see what you can do if you can grow it. Um, so from there, it was just, all right, dad's going to build me the grow room. Mom's going to support this. Uh, I started dabbling in it and growing and growing and growing, uh, through trial and error and failure, learning how to do things more and more correctly. And then eventually got extremely good at it and never stopped. No. So I, yeah, it's what, been um what year? Like were you, is where I know you're upstate New York. So is that where you grew up and that's where you were farming on your parents' land? So I've been in New York State my whole life. I've been an Orange County resident for my entire 30 years. Um and then yeah, so here in Orange County, uh at, at 13 years old, I, I started cultivating indoor. Uh, that's how I started growing the plant was uh indoor and then eventually transitioned to we were growing it outdoors and all over the county um orange county throughout the outdoor seasons every year where it would come around we would gorilla grow it's called where we would hide in the woods and plant plants wherever we could find a nice spot that nobody would come across them um oh that's that's similar. I, I just learned that I, I never knew about that gorilla growing, but I did uh, meet someone who did that in California and, and the Emerald Triangle. It's the first I heard about that kind of. Um, yeah, that's cool. Absolutely. Yeah, it's, uh, it was what we had to do was, you know, we were I was an indoor grower. 
Um, mom and dad didn't have much to do with it other than they just supported it. Um, they lived in a bit of fear because of it, uh, which is understandable. The times were a lot different then. Um, we couldn't talk to anybody about it. I couldn't tell my friends, you know, it was already living a double life, at, you know, starting at 13. Um, yeah, it's then... shocking that <laughs> your parents would <laughs> promote this at 13 only because I know as a parent myself and, you know, a smoker my whole life that you fear your children getting taken away from you. If you're even caught, you know, from someone in the schoolyard, you know, ratting you out. A hundred percent. You know, the way I, I guess mom and dad saw it was, you know, mom was a dancing bear. She was a, a follower of the Grateful Dead for, you know, her life. And um, mm. dad was the union steam fitter who was the follow the rules kind of guy, um, but had a rebel background to him. So, you know, their biggest thing was they saw I had a gift and embraced it. And they had a feeling that I had the, the talent. Um, to grow the plant and they saw how I felt about it and you know that I truly believed it was the future not just in a sense of you know it can make money but that it was a true medicine to help people um, and so we you know they embraced that for me and wanted me to nurture my talents it's how it always was with mom and dad any talent I had um, and God bless me with a lot of talents and gifts they nurtured it and wanted me to, to chase after it. They never stifled any of my talents. I have to say that. Wow. That's amazing. That's really amazing. Um, so then, okay. So you're 30 years old and then, so how did you then transition into the uh, legal market? What, who, who was your mentor there? What, what provoked that? What was the catalyst for that? So, you know, I, I cultivated in legacy all those years, starting at 13. And as I grew up, got more and more deeper into legacy and growing more and, you know, having more product out there and, and people working with a lot of other legacy people navigating it. Um, I want to make it known that it wasn't just an easy, beautiful ride. There was a lot of, you know, problems along the way, a lot of persecution from uh, authorities and you know, the term legacy to me, I understand it. I know what it means for me, but I'm not the biggest fan of it in the sense of how everybody, how it's been adopted and used to kind of marginalize people like myself, where like, don't get me wrong. I utilize the term legacy. I know what it means for me. But when I think of what I went through, that's really not the most amazing journey to use the word like legacy, like leaving something beautiful behind. It was living in the shadows. It was hiding from police. It was running away from the police countless times, getting beat up by them, you know, uh, being put in, you know, handcuffs and, and bullshit that, you know, sorry, I don't mean to curse, but. No, no. Yeah, <laughs> no, God, no. It wasn't great. Like, there's good memories, but I had to look over my shoulder. We had to live in fear of things. It wasn't the greatest journey, but we never gave up on it. And we truly believed especially myself, that I would never give up. I would never stop. I wouldn't quit. And that's how I made it to this point. So to answer your question, I went through all of that. And then in 2018, they legalized hemp um, federally with the 2018 uh, hemp farm bill that was passed. And I founded a consulting agency called Sensei Growth Consulting 
which became the oldest cannabis consulting agency uh, in New York State and the first. Um, so I took that agency, a fully vertical one, covering any sector of the industry regarding cannabis and hemp CBD. And I began to work with the licensed farmers, including myself who had a license um, in the state of New York to cultivate CBD and hemp. And then I started working all across uh, the United States with other companies and growers, even as far as Thailand and other countries um, to teach them how to grow the plant properly and do it at scale commercially. Um, and then from that point, I met a lot of contacts. I really established myself in the industry in the legal sense, kind of bordering, straddling that line between legacy and legal then um, by dipping into the CBD and hemp and being legal with that while also operating in legacy. And then over the years, we eventually transitioned the consulting agency full-time to cannabis and THC plants, then doing the same thing worldwide, consulting, building grows, um, and working with companies. Then they passed the MRTA on uh, uh, March 31st, 2021, I believe it was. And that day that the MRTA went uh, passed is when I fully went legal and I walked away from the legacy market entirely um, and then established my brand, Seven Seas, here in New York State as the first legacy to legal brand to launch. It seems like everybody's becoming more, you know, craft at um, growing the plant and, and the way it's just evolving now, of course, into products is, is so amazing. So you must have been working with a lot of different genetics and things like that, I guess, right? Like just... No, absolutely. I mean, you know, it, even thinking about my upbringing and how it started, I think people are so spoiled nowadays. Like for us, even myself, when I started smoking, it was just Mexican brickweed sticks yeah. and stems is what I. That's what I'm talking you know? about. Yeah, right, right, right. Yeah. I, I started on that. And then for me, me, my transition was I saw the market actually really change in that it went from us getting Mexican brickweed seeds and stems to then we got introduced to what's called dro, which is the hydro. Um, and then we started to get our genetics that we were growing to be even better. But in between that time, then we would get the BC bud, which was called beasters that would come down from Canada when there were droughts here. You don't see droughts anymore where there's no product. Um, there were droughts back then where you couldn't get any weed and Canada would ship down what they called the beasters uh, from, uh, British Columbia into New York. And then we would get actual supply of, of weed. And it was a little bit better than the dro, but it wasn't like super heady boutique weed, um, that we eventually got introduced to a little bit later. So we had like an evolution of, of, of plant, uh, quality and genetics as well. And then once we started messing with our own genetics, that's when we really went to a new level. Oh, that's what I was trying to understand. Thank you for clarifying that. Yeah, I was wondering, when did it go from, yeah, you know, Mexican brickweed to to where we are today? Yeah, that's so interesting. And and so how and then you you've also worked with other uh, cultivators in other countries like to set up grow for them. Is, is that right? I've consulted for companies um, that are in other countries. Yeah, like 
uh, when Thailand went legal with their market, I worked with a company out there to uh, provide them consultation and guidance on their greenhouse facilities and having to deal with the climate out there and how to, um, you know, grow these plants properly in that microclimate to be successful. And I've also consulted for companies in other countries as well um, regarding other things in the industry too. So uh, how about your genetics then? What are you, how, how do you decide on genetics? Do you, do you breed also, or wh where do you get them from as far as for growing in the New York climate? So genetics predominantly are, you know, a multifaceted, uh, kind of decision that needs to be made. And sometimes it's organically and how it comes to be. There's things that we've kept that are heirloom cuts. Uh, that we found years and years ago that we've tested through our legacy days in both the outdoor light dev greenhouse and indoor environments here in New York that we keep around. Um, there's, you know, obviously some cuttings that are, you know, we call them market chasers where they're good and they're definitely a little hype in the sense of what, what people always want, the new flavors, what they want to go after. So we find new things too, but we work with a company out of Oregon. Um, uh, my brother owns it. He's not my brother by blood, but he is family to me and it's called Ziploc seeds. And he's a second generation breeder where his father was Willie Nelson's personal dealer for many years and a, a world renowned breeder himself. Um, and so his son, who is a, my good friend has taken the totem pole and ran with it and has spent the last 20 years breeding in the Oregon environments, uh, top tier worldwide winning uh, to cannabis genetics. And we work with Ziploc to test his varietals that he breeds in Medford, Oregon for here in the New York climate. He's got roots here in New York as well. His mom's from Long Island. So he spends his time out West. I handle all the East coast business development and genetic operation. And we utilize his breeding products, uh, his processes and his offspring to hunt through them doing massive pheno hunts to find very specific cultivars that check all the boxes to benefit, not just us at seven seas, um, but other farmers in the state of New York that are cultivating commercially. So that way they can reap the rewards of their harvest and actually uh, benefit their families and their businesses. Yeah, that's a conversation I would love to dive deep into with you or someone on another day, because I know that's a whole conversation. I, I don't know them that much about genetics but it seems to be deep and wide about <laughs> about that that topic so um that, that's pretty cool it's something that you know the, the general public is just going to want to really know about you know um i think it's great information to get out there so are you uh, so you're only able to grow outdoors now is that right yeah so i mean specifically with myself for my situation um I work with a licensed grower here in, in, uh, in New York state that's under the program by the OCM. My hemp license that I held underneath the OCM did not transition to the AUCC license that was given to the hemp growers to grow THC cannabis. Um, even though I had the required uh, planting reports that uh, was stated in order to transition, I was cultivating for other farmers, keeping their farms alive helping them through my consulting company. And because I wasn't submitting reports underneath my own license, the OCM didn't transition mine for some reason. Uh -huh. So I had 
yeah, it was, you know, it was a total bummer, but I didn't sit down and wallow in it. Instead, I went out and formed relationships with wonderful farmers um, that I work with personally who grow for me and my brand. So I work with them on their farms, uh, with their farms as well. And, um, and they cultivate both outdoor and in light depth greenhouse uh, environments at this time. But we have built for our clients here in New York, uh, which is probably looking to be the first indoor licensed cultivation facility. The facility is fully built. It's state of the art. It's the compliance to the regulation, to the T. And it's female, women-owned. It's a longtime client, a friend of mine here in Orange County. She's going to be operating indoor and cultivating um, thousands of feet of, of indoor fully supplemented light canopy um, with premium genetics from us at 7Cs and Sensei Growth, along with Ziploc. And uh, she's going to be operating that with us. Um, and we're going to be bringing indoor flower to the market uh, with her as well and her brand too. So that's going to be very interesting soon. Cool. Can you tell, tell us who that is? Um, I can't at this exact time okay. um, out of respect for her and her operation. She's going to be announcing stuff soon. And I want her to have absolute, you know, I don't want to steal her thunder. She's worked so hard on this with us. Okay. And this is like her baby. And I want her to have her moment, you know, and she deserves her and her family for sure. Oh, wow. That sounds cool. So this is in, and this is separate from the farm that you're working on, working with to produce seven C's or. Is this um, yeah. So currently the farms that work with us to produce seven C's, um, this indoor facility is going to be an entirely different thing. And we're going to be working with her company and brand and doing uh product indoor product out of her facility for the market. So that's going to be two separate things, but we'll, we will, we will continue to work with our growers that have the greenhouse and outdoor um, because we don't leave people behind. We work with all of our family in, in this industry and where they're going is going to be incredible too with what they're doing. And people love that product. And so we we're definitely going to keep that going too, for sure. So I thought that farmers, the, uh, hemp farmers had, to, you know, they could only grow outdoors. And it, it, is it that they had to make the decision for this current har harvest to grow indoors? I thought it was only outdoors only. Is everybody, did, so, it, did the state say go ahead for greenhouses as well? So the, the farmers are allowed to grow currently that hold a license for either outdoor canopy of one acre or they can grow a combination of uh, light deprivation or just regular greenhouse along with outdoor. And that's the current license situation, the indoor situation. She's applying right now for the license. She'll most likely fully be approved for it. The facility's built. So she's going to get a full adult use license for cultivation, as opposed to the growers now who are growing, they're only under the conditional AUCC license at this time. So that's the separation of, of what's allowed there. Okay. And then how about your, can you just tell us a little bit about your product seven C's? Is it, um, it's a pre-roll brand. Correct. Yes. Right. Um, seven C's is a premium cannabis brand. Uh, currently we only have pre-roll, but we will be moving into other products eventually. Um, we have at this moment, what I founded, uh, what I formulated, excuse me, to be called the tsunami. 
And so that's the best-selling infused pre-roll on the New York adult use market right now. It's a triple infused pre-roll with full flower into it, no shaker trim. It's the actual full bud, grade A bud that goes into the, the pre-roll. And then we infuse it with three things, with cultivar-specific keef. So keef that's identical to the cultivar of flower that's in there. We hit it with the keef inside of the pre-roll, not on the outside. That way you actually smoke it and inhale it yep. for its medicinal for its benefit. Um, and then we infuse it with cannabis-derived terpene, which is called CDT. So it's a, a true cannabis terpene that's pulled from the plant. And then we re-infuse that in a specific terpene profile, full spectrum, back into the pre-roll uh, with limonene dominance, myrcene, um, alpha uh, pinene, things like that. And then we also infuse it with a concentrate. And in this case, the newest batch of tsunamis is the THC distillate. And we put a generous amount of 200 milligrams of THC distillate into each pre-roll, making for definitely a very potent, powerful, but enjoyable. and Oh, my gosh. That sounds amazing. <laughs> Wait, is that in the stores now? I'm going to go get one. That sounds so yes. good. Yeah. It's, no, it's, thank you. Um, it's the, the tsunami. The, I would go in seven C tsunami. That's what I would ask for. Yes, exactly. The current batch is out there now. And then the uh, newest batch is releasing this week, um, <laughs> later in the week. And that'll be available throughout the state. Um, and it's, uh, the new Citradelic sunset strain is, is in the current, the new batch coming out. Um, and it's just really flavorful. It was a 29.66% potency, I believe on this batch. And, you know, the biggest thing for me too, is I, I don't want people to not be able to get the most out of a product they're buying. Right. So with ours, with the tsunami, you don't need to smoke the entire thing, right? You can make it last yeah. for a a few sessions and it also helps people that don't have that much money you know they want to buy something and make it last well you can do that with the tsunami and still get the same effects and benefit from it you know as opposed to smoking three or four joints to have oh to do yeah so. um uh so the challenge is selling in a dispensary um how I mean, I know there's so few dispensaries, but I'm wondering as far as shelf space and, you know, you've kind of heard like this pay, pay to play. I don't know if that's really happening in New York. How do you, are you worried about the, you know, when the, when the ROs come on, come online and being able to get shelf space, that whole, you know, that whole thing that's happening. How, how is that working for you at, at seven C's? I mean, for us, we, we really look at it like a family, like we call our, our retailers, the seven C's retail family. Right. And and for me, I've just been hitting the ground running for nine months, nonstop pounding the pavement. I've been all over the state riding trains, planes, cars, uh, on foot. I mean, anything you could think of uh, to get to the locations and meet with these store owners and, and sit down, have a meal with them, talk about life. What are you going through? What has your journey been? Hearing their story. You know, we, we look at it in a truly personal way where we don't want to just do business one time with someone and then okay, well, let's hope that they want to reorder. We know our product's good, but we don't look at it as if they need us more than we need them. It's a symbiotic relationship and we treat them that way with respect. And it's, it's family to us. So, 
you know, the retailers that come to us or we go to them and we meet and we introduce ourselves, we look at it like we're family and it's not easy. It's a hard, hard road to be on. And I'm a one man band. You know, I don't have investors. I don't have a team. I just have me. I have me and my family um, that support me. Uh, and so for me, it's just, all right, I got to go and do this. I have to do marketing. I have to do sales, product development and uh, formulation, manufacturing, distribution. I mean, there's everything. And it's a lot of work, but it's hard to get into the stores. There's no doubt about it. I think what separated it for us was the product quality and how we went about putting our quality over quantity uh, initiative to the forefront and coming into the game with a lot of predisposed, uh, a lot of previous experience, you know, all my years, legacy to legal, being the first legacy to legal brand to launch in New York, you know, people already knew my reputation because I had put in the time I had earned my stripes in the game for many years and came into that with that, that pre-existing reputation and then showed them through the product that I was who they had heard me to be. So for me, it's a little, little different, but it doesn't make it a cakewalk. It doesn't make it easy. Um, you know, and there is some stuff going on for sure in the industry where people are buying their way into stores and, you know, handing envelopes under the table and buying shelf space or, you know, some people are doing deals with store owners that aren't, you know, that kosher and where they'll give them a lot of product and say, okay, well, you don't got to pay us back for many, many months. Don't worry about it. Just make sure you keep selling it and get to us when you can. You know, there's for a small business that needs cash flow that's out here on the grind, hustling every day, putting in the work, trying to move their product. And if they're a farmer that's living or dying by this, they are not in a position that other people that have a lot of funding or capital money behind them are to where they can just say, okay, you know, pay me whenever you can, or it is what it is. I'll get to you. You know, when I get to you, they need that money to survive. They need that money to pay their bills and their family. Um, and so New York as the OCM didn't really do much to protect those farmers or the brands or the businesses that came into this in order to make sure that people were on the up and up and that they get paid for the product they grew and sold. There was 90 day terms in, a, in the original whole many months of this market. And some people didn't even pay them in 90 days. And then there were, you know, now we've changed it to 30 days. You got to pay us within 30 days. I, I hope that, you know, they stick true to this idea that you have to be paid in 30 days. Cause it doesn't make sense to me that a farmer should have to wait more than that in order to be paid for their product that they already grew packaged, tested, delivered and everything and marketed in order to get it on that shelf. So, you know, it's, it's crazy out here right now. Yeah. Maybe the state should lower some taxes. I, I know they're trying to, um, you know, 
make up for the 280E. I think that that was passed. But, you know, that's one of the problems. People don't have any, you know, they have slim profit margins. And yeah, they, they need the cash flow. And that's what's happening out in California. People are going under because they're, the stores aren't paying for it. Yeah, it's really crazy. But um, going back to like your relationships, you know, with uh, the stores, you're saying it's like family, you know, that kind of really makes sense. I didn't really think about that. It's a different retail wholesale relationship in this industry, I think, because of the camaraderie, especially I feel like in New York, everybody's been going through so much, you know, and, and putting their livelihoods and, you know, life savings on the line. So maybe there's like a really good camaraderie between, you know, the brands and the, and the retail and everybody feels like let's try to stick it out together. So you know, so that's, that, that's a good thing. Um, that's special in this industry, I think. Um, but so now I know that you've been around for a long time and that you, you know, ha obviously have a customer base and those people are used to buying, uh, you know, in, in not in the legal market, uh, you know, like most people and, but it's so, it costs so much to to shop in the legal market. Are you finding that your a lot of your old customers are are actually going to the dispensaries and buying your product, or in in a show of support, or just? I would just say that you know the 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 old customer base for me was something I walked away from, and and you know respectfully so when I transitioned to legal, and I've seen some support from them and wanting to support the brand, you know, in my journey. But when it comes down to it, customers vote with their wallet, right? And it's not that they don't want to buy the brand or the product. They yeah. don't want to pay the price recreational at the adult use dispensary. So for them, you know, for, for the old customer base, nah, they shop on the street still. Yeah, <laughs> you know? that's, they do. They do. They do. Yeah. Every, I mean, it's just, yeah, we're just, I guess we're just, we just haven't evolved there yet. I, I was just curious because you do have a customer base if that's helping you at all. Um, because obviously sales in the stores are going to matter if you're going to, you know, they're going to keep reordering from you. So, um, but, I but had to, I had to create a whole new customer base, you know, going legal. That's, that's part of it is, you know, you don't get to bring everybody with you. So you right. got to create, this is it's all new. It's all, it's marketing to a whole different, um, it's a whole, whole different, um, consumer base in a sense. It is, it's, it's, a, it's a different consumer base, it, but they, they consume the same product. So that's the, that's the crazy part of it is that you're marketing to a different consumer base, yet they're the same, but they're also different because they don't want to spend the same money that the legacy consumer base wants to, but they want the same quality product the adult use consumers want the same quality product that they're getting from legacy, but they're willing to pay more for it. But legacy wants the same quality, but they want to pay less. So <laughs> the, the, the time that it happens where everybody comes together right. is eventually when the market starts to reflect what California has, where you get that product quality, but for a much cheaper price. And then everybody's happy because the adult use consumers now still get the product, but they end up saving money. And then the legacy gets the product and they don't have to spend more. And mm -hmm. so then they feel encouraged to go and shop and look at the variety and they'll go into a store and pay for it. But there is always going to be a consumer base that never goes into a store yeah. and never will. Mm -hmm. You know, yeah. that. you can't please everyone, but yeah. we have seen that. I think what really 
separated us from the herd too in the adult use, which is interesting, is how we went about it in that I created this product that was so unique and different. And everybody wanted to do gummies. Everybody kept coming to me saying, why don't you do a gummy? Have an edible, do a gummy. I'm not that person. I never really liked gummies. I don't want anything to do with it. For me, I was always a smoker. And I knew that good smoke was always the leader of the pack. And if you had something unique that people could enjoy, and it was different than other products and was innovative and it hit every time and the consistency was there in quality, that that would be interesting to the consumer and they would want to go after because that's what I would want. And that's what separated us was me doing it that way. And then everybody else had the same thing. They had flour, they had blueberry muffin. And that was like in every store with every grower. And then you had people doing pre-rolls that were mostly shake or just really low quality flour. And then the gummy that everybody did a gummy, just the same distillate with pectin and different flavoring. And that to me is so boring. Yeah. It doesn't represent New York, what we are, you know, what we're about. That doesn't show us like we're the leader of the entire United States of the world. We have the biggest market. Come on, let's do something. Let's go for it. And so I did. But I feel like everybody else was kind of, I don't know, maybe playing it too safe. So so you're saying like tsunami, the tsunami brand or, you know, the tsunami um version of your brand is, is, is the tsunami the only uh, version of seven C's or, or do you have different types of infused or just plain pre-rolls or a tsunami so brand? The, the seven C's tsunami is the singular product. Um, in the beginning, we started with a few other just regular flower pre-rolls. And that's really what showed me like after seeing how those sold, that things could be so different and better. And so then I transitioned and created the Tsunami product. Um, and then after, yeah, after that, we've gone through a few batches of the Tsunami. Um, and now we've, we went from a just double infused to now triple infused. So I once again, further elevated it with the product. Um, and then we have other things that we're working on that'll be coming out soon too. But for now, it's, it's the Tsunami is the star of the brand and it is the brand at this time. Yeah, I, I'm excited. I'm really I, I'm excited because the terpenes adding all that in there, you know, with the entourage effect. I mean, I believe in all that. So, wow, that that's fantastic. Um, and how are you thinking about um, uh, what's going to happen or what are your plans in the future for when um, interstate commerce opens up? Is that is a worry for you um, as a grower in New York? Oh, yeah, sure. I mean, the minute interstate happens. Um, you know, Philip Morris has already bought thousands of acres in Northern California, uh, you know, decades old family farms sold out to quite a few conglomerates and venture capitalists for, um, in Northern California, because they know that when the time comes and federal, federal legalization occurs and they can interstate move the product and sell it and there's safe banking in place where they can bank. Um, once that happens, the only place to grow year-round in the United States successfully at scale is Northern California. It's not New York. It's not Florida or Texas or anywhere. The perfect climate to grow the plant year-round is Northern California. Right. So that's why they're pursuing that land um, to do so. And once they acquire it, they'll also build indoor facilities. But the cheapest way to do it is to grow it 
you know, in greenhouses in Northern California year round. And then they already have the distribution network set up to where they sell their cigarettes into every gas station. They're going to sell THC joints in every gas station the same way they sell Marlboro cigarettes. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it puts, this, there's, there's no success for the small farmer once that happens. I mean, it's, it's pretty much game over. And everybody that's from Legacy that truly has been through it knows that to be the case. So we have a clock, you know, the clock's running out. The time will come within the next five years where interstate occurs and, you know, there's going to be nothing they can really do about it. It'll be a tidal wave in itself coming to shore. Um, And then a lot of people are going to be selling out. So what matters is the brands, you know, what they're going to want is like Philip Morris is going to want IP. These other companies, these pharmaceutical companies are going to come in. They want IP. They want brands. They want pre-established brands where they know if they bought something, people are going to come in and they're going to want it. They already have that consumer base. And so they are, we buy this brand. They have this unique thing. They've got a great consumer base. We take it over. We keep doing what they're doing. And then we've already captured that consumer base. And all we have to do is just keep moving forward. I mean, they already know what they're doing. So, you know, they're buying, they're buying companies left and right. And, you know, it's everybody's about the culture until they get a check in their hand for like $4 million. Then they're like, all right, great. It was a good ride. You know, yeah. and then they. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, honestly, people are getting tired and, you know, it's, 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 you get beat up, obviously. Um, you know, and people are, are sick of, you know, you know, living paycheck to paycheck or pay to pay, you know just trying to pay their bills in this industry. Um, but yeah, I know I'm worried, but I think you're right. It's building your brand. That's what, that's really what you can, you know, hope for that you get a really good brand. Um, yeah, but you know what you're, you're I mean, being in New York as a brand in New York, I always say this is we're so uniquely positioned, uh, as one of the, you know, tourist capitals of the world. We have so many you know, it's such a, a, a step into the global marketplace. Um, so, you know, I guess if you can get noticed by all the, you know, the tourists that come through here, um, that can kind of set you apart a little bit on the global, you know, scale. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, we've already, you know, people have already approached me, uh, regarding the brand and wanting to do it in other places other than just New York that have <gasps> discovered it, you know, um, it's already, you know, there's already been conversations about that, that sort of thing. It's a, I think the best part about seven seas is I didn't make it just for New York, right? Like I was in New Yorker. I always have been, I love it. And then we hate it at the same time. That's how we are as New Yorkers, you know, it's, it's good and then it's not, but that's where we are. And I made this brand out of just love and, you know, a part of it, like a big part of the brand is the nonprofit that I founded that ties in with the brand. Something I didn't speak on yet. Yeah. I wanted um, to ask you the, about that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's called the New York small farmer fund. And for me, it was following in my mom's footsteps of serving, uh, of, of ha- really helping um, underserved communities and, and uh, populations uh, of people that aren't represented really well. And so for me, I wanted to do something for the farmer, for the small farmer in New York, because I know what that life is. I know the struggle. I know what it's about and how tough it can be where, you know, people don't consider the small farmer really that much. They don't, 
when they eat their food, they don't really think about it. Oh, who grew this? You know? Um, you know, so for me, I knew that I could have a platform and an ability to do something with the brand and to generate, um, funds to be able to help out these people that needed it. So I created a nonprofit, the New York small farmer fund, and a portion of the proceeds from the seven seas brand goes to that nonprofit, um, to provide direct financial assistance for struggling small farmers, uh, who cultivate non-subsidized commercial crops such as cannabis throughout the state of New York. Um, and so we're, we're going to give back. We're going to help out. We're going to help these people out and do our best because the state, I don't believe does enough to help them. And, uh, you know, so, so, okay. So, um, I guess to wrap it up, but that this is fantastic. It's so great to learn about it. Um, is there anything else that you want to say, um, about everything that you're doing or any comments about anything where you're going and, well, I mean, uh, just the, the way I look at it is like the three pillars of the seven seas brand is, you know, we have the nonprofit where we help out the small farmers. We were the first legacy to legal brand in New York. And that's not something that we forget. I I'm working with other legacy. Many reach out to me looking for guidance and advice on how to come up into the legal market. And I don't leave people behind. So we're, we're doing our best to help out those operators to transition, um, to, to remove themselves from the past and move forward to the future into the, the legal market if they want to. So we're showing love that way. Um, and then the other part is, you know, with, with the name of the brand seven C's, all the packaging that we utilize um, is made in the USA and it's made of hundred percent ocean reclaimed plastic. That's one of the coolest things about the brand is all the packaging is plastic pulled from the ocean away from the Marine life. And then we reclaim it and then turn it into the packaging for the cannabis products. And then if somebody recycles it, then it doesn't go back into the ocean. And so we're helping clean up the ocean. We've already pulled thousands and thousands of pounds out of the ocean by working with the manufacturer that we do here in the USA. And they have deep ties to New York and roots here. So we're helping clean oceans. We're giving back to the community and we're supporting the legacy of the legal movement. And it's just a beautiful thing. And it's, it's my yeah. passion, it's my love. Yeah, and it's cool. That is very cool. All of that is very cool. Wow. And and actually, the the uh, I guess the last question I I, I forgot I, I didn't realize that you were helping a lot of legacy to legal. What I mean, what is the general consensus? I mean, it's so freaking hard and expensive, and it, are, are people really wanting to come in? Is it? What do you, what do you see out there? I mean, is it, I wouldn't say it's not droves of people, you know, it's not like, Oh, I got 20 people calling me today. You know, it's, it's, it's a, a smaller group that are looking at it in a more of a business sense. Mm -hmm. And they say to themselves, all right, I've dealt with this enough. Um, they, I think what it is too, is the common denominator that I've seen as well. One of the things is they want to be able to talk about this openly with their families or with their friends or with their, their, their cohort, whatever it is, they, they don't want to live in the shadow anymore, even in the current state of things where yes, it's legal and you know, this and that, but is the gifting legal is the gray market legal? Who knows? You know, that's debatable, but for them, they want to pursue this dream that they had, right? 
And that's what it all comes down to is what was your dream about? Was it to just grow weed? Was it just to sell weed? Or was it to build a real brand that's fully out there, that's in the open, that you can do deals with, you can do legitimate business deals with, you can, you know, yes, you pay taxes on all of this, but at the same time, you also get a little bit of that freedom, a little bit of that peace of mind, right? Yeah. And I think that that's the common denominator. Now, how many people want that? I'm not the one to say, but there's definitely people reaching out that are looking even for, you know, what is the first steps that I take? What do I do? How do I go about this? Um, they're applying for applications now, you know, and this whole lottery style system that the state is now doing, which is, you know, so once again, bewildering to me, but here we are in the most corrupt state continuing mm-hmm. to be, I'm sure corrupt. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, but that, that's the truth of it. So that's what, that's, what's going on. Right, right, right. Wow. Wow. So exciting. I'm so happy for you. I mean, I think it's going to be great once you can get through all this. It sounds like you have a great. I, I want to thank you for, for having me on and, and considering me and taking the time to speak with me and let me tell my story and message uh, of what, what we're doing. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Season one of Dope History is now available at dopehistory.com. Dope History weaves you through the lives of those who have been touched by cannabis or have had an influence on the events that shaped our laws or relationships with this plant. You'll hear tales from Frenchie Cannoli, Keith Strop, Eddie Lepp, Tom Alexander, Ed Rosenthal, Wolf Seagull, Jorge Cervantes, and Tommy Chong. Available now at dopehistory.com.